And I have a going to have a volunteer tonight to look up Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. Proverbs 19, 11. Uh, the title, so we're going through uh, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. This is a, one of those tool, toolbox books, you know, book that you need to have in your toolbox for resolving conflicts. It's a tremendous help as I've been going back. I've read this book before, but going back through it and teaching it to you guys, I feel like I have, I'm reading it for the first time. There's so many things I've just been really impressed with and very, very thankful for. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 11. Yes, ma'am. Cassie. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Okay. The title of this chapter is, Is This Really Worth Fighting Over? And it's a great question, this idea of overlooking a transgression. When is it appropriate to overlook something, and when is it appropriate to dig in and deal with something? This is the million-dollar question, right? Like, is this something worth fighting about, or do I just let it go? And so that's what we're going to be talking about, and we'll take as long as we need to. Uh, in fact, last week I teased this, uh, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, well, that's what I need to hear, so why didn't you talk about it last week? So anyway, they didn't say it that way, but I think that was, uh, I understand what they mean. But um, go to Matthew 7. I want to show you a couple of things here. The um, Matthew chapter 7 is a familiar passage about judging. It says, you know, it's the, uh, I used to say it's the most quoted verse in the Bible outside John 3.16, you know, Matthew 7, 1. Uh, you start talking to somebody and they say, well, the Bible says judge not, you know, uh, judge not that you be not judged. And, and they don't know what it means, but they know that it means that. And so if you look at what it says, if you follow along, um, he says uh, in verse 2, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Do not consider the plank that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly what? To remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is not a prohibition against correcting people. In fact, so your first blank is there, God does not forbid correction. Judge not that you be not judged does not mean God says you're not allowed to correct other people. That is not the case. You're not allowed, or you are allowed to help. In fact, you're encouraged to help people. What's the point of Matthew 7? As I put it here below, Matthew 7, 1 through 5 does not forbid lovingly correcting our brothers and sisters. It forbids what Sandy calls premature and improper correction. And I would add selfish correction. The idea that you're correcting someone either to, to, put, to make yourself feel better. There, you know, there's this, there's this um, uh, um, I don't know what you call it. Like, it's a, there's, a, there's a thing that happens when people listen to uh, talk radio. Uh, uh, remember, do you remember like they used to have those shows where people call in for like emotional help or uh, it was like Dr. S Dr. Laura. Do you remember that? You remember that? Okay. You know why people listen to that, right? It's because you listen to that and you think, man, my life isn't too bad. You know, man, these people are crazy. People do that with, Doc with Dave Ramsey too. They're like, well, at least I'm not in that much debt. You know, you, it makes you feel better about yourself. You're, you're judging that person and therefore you're feeling better about yourself because someone else has it worse off than you. Okay. That's not the reason you judge. Or that's not the reason you correct. You don't correct people to make yourself feel better. You don't correct people to, to, to put them in their place. You don't correct them for power reasons. 
You, you do so as, as a way of loving them, and that's what he says here. But first, in order to correct, you must deal with your own issue. That's the point of Matthew 7. You must remove the plank that's in your eye before you can help your brother with the speck that's in their eye. The implication is, is that your issues are much worse than their issues. And, and so be, be careful. God does not forbid correction. Um, the book, he, he gives us two issues that form conflicts. Um, by the way, if at any point you want to say something, I'm, I'm just going to keep going. You raise your hand or you, you, you interrupt me. I don't have any problem with that. That is a kind of correction that we will allow tonight, all right? Totally allowed. Um, and this is interesting. I thought this was helpful. He, he, he says there's two main kinds of correction. The first kind of, or for, two main kinds of conflict that, that uh, two, two issues that form conflicts. And the first kind of issue he calls material issues. Um, and, and these are serious, uh, but uh, material issues, and then the second he calls personal issues. But how, the, the strategy for dealing with these two is different. So a material issue would be likened to um, if you and your siblings are having an argument over the division of your parents' estate. There is, a, there is an argument over who gets what because something's unclear or somebody promised something, okay? This is a material, a material issue. And, and, the, and the way these things are resolved, it's solved through, as he puts here, cooperation and negotiation, so both parties need to be willing to give and work together and cooperate and negotiate on this. In fact, we were talking about this in our staff meeting this morning. I was giving them a, um, a Cliff Notes version of this, and one of our, one of our um, staff members said, well, well, you know, like, for example, when do you, when do you deal with something like, like hair in the sink, you know? Is that a personal issue or is that a material issue? And so I brought this up. They didn't actually know about this division, but I said, well, there's a difference sometimes between material and personal. So personal issues are solved by overlooking or the process of confession, correction, and forgiveness. And I would tend to say, and I, I don't know if he makes this distinction. I can't remember if he makes this distinction. But to me, the distinctions are this is sin issues. These are not sin issues. Does that make sense? So there are issues that you need to look overlook people that are not sin issues, but they bother you, the material, or they're material conflicts that really it's not a sin issue. Hair in the sink is probably one of those things, right? I don't think there's a Bible verse that says something about hair in the sink. Also, division of the assets, I think, would be a material thing. It's not a sin that one person wants the house and one person wants this, or what, you know what I'm saying. These kinds of things need to be negotiated. It's still a conflict. It's still something that needs to be worked through. But the personal issues are resolved, notice how he says, through overlooking or the process of confession, correction, and forgiveness. And so if you're going to be overlooking, um, I don't think overlooking really works well with material. I think that is more of the negotiation aspect. Overlooking is the personal thing. Okay, it's a sin issue. Um, so he gets into overlooking minor offenses. Uh, often the best tactic when sinned against is to overlook the offense against you. I already had you read Proverbs 19.11. Can someone read Ephesians? Um, let's just read, pick up some of these verses. How about Proverbs 17.14? Who wants to read that one? Somebody, okay, Dan. Um, 1 Peter 4.8. I think these are all okay, Colin. And then Ephesians 4.2, Jimmy. And then Colossians 3.13. I don't know if we'll get to all these uh, but we will try. Uh, Proverbs seventeen fourteen. Who who do I have with that? Yes, sir. Uh, 
strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Okay, stop contention before a quarrel starts. It's like releasing water. It's a vent. Be careful. Something builds up, then boom, it explodes. All right, next, uh, 1 Peter 4, 8. All things have perfect love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Love will cover, a mul- and we'll talk about what that means tonight uh, at length. Ephesians 4, 2. <clears throat> Beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all loneliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Yep, very good. And, and so, in, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I had the next verse memorized. <laughs> I was thinking about endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. This idea of the idea of pulling together and having this, this harmony together and this bond of the Spirit. I, I think, uh, oh, one more, Colossians 3, 13. Who had that? Yes, Will. Okay, good. So we are called to forgive. When it comes to, I forgot to mention one thing about the material and personal, sometimes these things do become tangled together in an argument, and it will help you to sort through what parts of the argument are negotiable argument issues and what parts are, non, are personal or sin issues uh, if they become entangled. And, and there are examples of that in the book. If you have the book, you'll read that. But the main question we have to ask ourselves is, should we overlook this, or are these things worth fighting over. Uh, there, not everything is worth overlooking. You can't just overlook everything. Um, there are a couple things, oh, as we read these verses that talked about the, the priority of the best tactic is overlook. There's two conditions on this, two conditions that should prevent you from overlooking a sin. And the first condition is it should not create a wall between you and the other person. If overlooking a sin is going to create a wall between you and the other person, you cannot overlook that sin. Okay, if, the, if, if, if someone is, is personally sinning and, and, you, and it's creating a barrier to your relationship, you cannot overlook it. Secondly, it should not be causing serious harm to God's reputation to others or to the offender. So in these situations, if someone is, is enslaved to a sin, you might be tempted to overlook it. Sometimes overlooking, it, it feels like the easiest route when somebody is enslaved to something. You say, well, I'm just not going to deal with it. And that's not, that's not overlooking. That's not biblical overlooking. That's like living in denial. And when somebody is engaged in something that's actually a harm to God's reputation, a harm to other people, a harm to themselves, then you should not overlook it. You should commit yourself to dealing with it. Am I making sense so far? I'm just regurgitating what he says. I'm trying to be clear. Does that make sense? Yeah. Can you give an example of a wall? Yeah. Um, give an example of a wall that's created when, when you can't overlook an offense. Let me think for a second. Um, um, oh, man. You got one? Yeah. Um, if um, somebody offends you and... Every time you see that person, that's what you think about, and you can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. And, and you know that it's affecting your relationship. Um, you know, you can't, you can't just overlook, you can't just say, well, I'm just not going to do it. I got an idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great example. Like, let's say, let's say you're having a conversation with somebody, and let's say something t- somebody tells a really crass joke. Uh, but it's just the two of you, or maybe it's a small group. 
and it was just inappropriate, and it was crass, and, and they didn't think anything of it. Nobody thought anything of it, and, and you could overlook it, but it, was, it wasn't like it was done in public, but then you start thinking, and every time you see that person, you're like, I really, it just, this doesn't sit right with me. Something's wrong. I got to talk, you know, it, it affects how you see that person. He doesn't really give an example. He just says, uh, overlooking offenses is appropriate under two conditions. First, the offense should not have created a wall between you and the other person or caused you to feel differently toward him or her for not more than a short period of time. So this idea of a, a prolonged problem in your relationship with that person. Um, one of the things that sin does is it creates that boundary, right? Sin creates the separation, which is one of the things that I encourage parents to deal with their children's sin quickly. When my kids sin, we deal with it right then. We stop. I mean, it's annoying to have to stop everything you're doing, but the benefit is that you're able to, they're, you're able to restore that relationship immediately because that sin that they, if they lie to you or they yell at you, like, our youngest right now has this thing where she will sometimes, out of nowhere, just be like, stomp her foot and yell at me or yell at Jenna. And I'll be like, oh, I stop everything I'm doing. I could be in the middle of something very important. I stop everything I'm doing. I take her and I deal with her as a way of trying to resolve that issue so we can be restored in our relationship immediately. Uh, yes, ma'am. Helen. This great thing a while, okay. Um, we are talking about between two Christians. Correct. Correct. Between two Christians. Good, good clarification there. I want, I, yeah. yeah. Condition, in my mind, would be if that person, uh, these are conditions if... Uh, uh, that would prevent you from overlooking. Prevent you, yeah. That if it's, if it's, if the issue is not harming their spiritual relationship, their, their spiritual growth. If it's not if, harming? If it's something that's not really, it's just a... It's, it's more of a frivolous thing. It's not really harming their spiritual growth. I, I think that's one of the conditions for really, really confronting somebody is when you see that something that they're right. doing is harming their spiritual yeah. growth. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's like if it's being if it's if if their behavior is hurting themselves spiritually in any way, or it's it's a it's a um, it's a stumbling block for their spiritual. Growth. If you see that preventing them from growing. It could be a way that you, it could be something that you need to step in and, and, and help them with. Uh, but there's something very important about overlooking. If you look at the next line, this is so important. Overlooking is, sin is active, not passive. Overlooking sin is active, not passive. And this is um, something that we really need to grab onto, that when, when you're overlooking a sin, it's the same as if you are forgiving that person of that sin. So when you forgive someone, you make several promises. You're making promises that you will not hold it to their account, you will not dwell on it, and you will not uh, bring it up again. Okay, so, so, so forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. Sometimes you can't forget things. And God for, forgives, but God can't forget because God is all-knowing. God knows everything you've ever done, but he chooses not to remember, not to bring it up, not to build a little monument to your sin. That's what remembering means. It's like to build a monument. And so to forgive someone, you're saying, I make a promise that I will not dwell on this. I will not bring it up again. I'll not hold it to your account. And um, what, I, what happens sometimes is we, we allow things, we, pass, we say, okay, I'm not going to think about it, or I'm, I'm going to overlook it, but we just kind of file it for later. And we hold on to it, and we're like, when the time comes, I've got that on a note card right here in my pocket. And it's going to be, oh, yeah, well, last February, 
you know, I didn't say anything, but you did blank. And then in March, it was this, you know, and you go through your list and you, at the time, you may have said you were overlooking it. What you were really doing was just not dealing with it. So to overlook a sin is an active thing. It's not passive. It's not like you're sitting back and letting it happen. It means to, to in the book he says, to overlook an offense means to deliberately decide not to talk about it, dwell on it, or let it grow up into, grow into pent-up bitterness. Does that make sense? This is a really big, important point. Okay. Because that, that becomes a wall. Uh, like we right. So if we don't deal with it in God's in the God honoring way, biblically, like you're saying, that's, that's exactly what happens. A root of bitterness springs up, we create a wall, and then there's so much more work to do in that relationship. Right. And we'll talk more about how to confront people, how to deal with that. Right now we're talking about when not to do this, like how to overlook. But um, you're exactly right that if you let things go under the guise of, I am just overlooking this, if you pretend like that, I'm just overlooking this, but it really what you're doing is you're filing it away in your book, then, then you are actually just storing up for yourself fuel for bitterness, and you're going to spew, you're going to blow, you're going to get angry, it's going to come out in some way. Absolutely. Yeah, Jenna? Um, you said that talking, I, I think sometimes we think that we're overlooking something when we don't talk to the person about it, but we talk to many other people. Yeah. And so we, we, we assume that we've overlooked it, but we, you know, well, so-and-so and so-and-so, but I, it doesn't bother, you know, I, I don't bring it up. And it's like, no, you are bringing, you are bringing it up. It I mean, up. I do that. I'm just saying, I think sometimes we, we deceive ourselves into thinking we're overlooking, but we're just um, gossiping. Yeah, yeah. Don't go. I think I think the way I like to put it, and is that basically to overlook is the same pattern as forgiveness. You are you are choosing to do the same thing you would do if that person came and asked your forgiveness of you. And a lot of you know how to do forgiveness. We've talked about forgiveness here. We've had whole classes on forgiveness on how you how you make commitments to that person. You will not bring it up. How it is you forgive as Christ forgave. You forgive wholly. You forgive. It's the same. When you overlook an offense, you're choosing to do the same thing that you would do if that person came to you and asked to forgive. Okay, that's what overlooking an offense is. Um, so how do, you, how do you get your attitude? The difficulty here, as he talks about in the book, go to Philippians 4 with me. There are several steps here. Um, the difficulty when you've been hurt and when there is conflict is like, well, I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like overlooking this offense or loving this person. Look at Philippians 4, starting in verse 2. Paul is dealing with a conflict there in the church in Philippi. How would you have liked to bend one of these ladies, and your name is called out by the Apostle Paul during the public reading of the Word of God? You know, like they're reading the script, they're reading the letter for the church, and he gets to, therefore, my beloved, my long for my brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my beloved. I implore (laughs) Yudia... And I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Here's a couple people in the church who are arguing. And the arguing was so bad that Paul knew about it. And so he implores them to be of the same mind. And he says, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. These are not immature believers. These are mature fellow workers. You could call them missionary missionaries in the faith. They are hardworking, gospel-centered people. They're not immature 
people, and they are at odds with each other. And he says, I implore you with these women, labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And then he says these words, and I think sometimes we don't even look at the context. We go straight to verse 4, and we say, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Wait, what's the context of that verse? He's talking about unity between two people who are fighting. So I give you some things here as we, as we look at this. What are some principles or some steps to help change your attitude when you have a quarrel or when you have a conflict with somebody? Look at verse, uh, verse starting in verse 4. First, you need to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. You need to be thankful and rejoice. Uh, joy needs to be part of your life. When you are, what's the temptation when you're at odds with someone? What's that? To be what? Yeah. To be mad, right? Not to rejoice, but to be angry. Uh, to think that things are, things are bad. You're like, oh, I hate this. <laughs> I hate this. You feel kind of knotted up in your heart, in your stomach. But he's saying the opposite of that. Rejoice in the Lord. So rejoice in what God has done for you. And then uh, look at number two there. Uh, let your gentleness, your gentleness be known to all. That's your reasonableness is another very good translation of that word. It's a little hard to get into English, but the idea of that you're, you're pliable. You are not stubborn and, and, and hard to work with. You are gentle and reasonable. People can come to you and talk to you, and you will listen to them. We all know some people, like, you're, you know, you're afraid of talking to them about anything because they're not going to listen to you. You want to be the kind of person who will take information, who will be pliable and be gentle, because we're all work in progress. God is working on all of us, me included. God's working on all of us. He's doing things in us, and we all need to be ready to receive that help. Thirdly, replace anxiety with prayer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Anxiety is the opposite of prayer, because what does anxiety say? If I'm not, <laughs> I, I didn't catch that, but Ah, that's, that's the, that the word of anxiety, as, as we see here, as Nathan says, is, ah, <laughs> very descriptive. Um, the, anxiety is saying, if I don't think about it, it might happen, right? If I'm not, like, focused on this, something bad's going to happen. I've got to think about every little thing, every little potential possible, every little thing that might happen. I've got to have it in my brain so I can avoid all these things. There's a general feeling of bad stuff is all around me, right? Anxiety um, or, or pressure. Or, uh, but he says, don't be anxious about these things. Replace it with prayer. What is prayer telling us? For, instead of me being in charge of everything, what does prayer say? Lord, you know. You order my steps, right? You direct me. So replace your anxieties with prayer. See, uh, see things as they really are is the next one. Let your request be known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, pure, lovely, whatever things are good report, if there's any virtue of anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So think on the things that are good. See things as they truly are. Can someone read Proverbs eleven twenty seven. I don't remember this cross-reference, but... Uh, I don't think we've done that one yet. Proverbs eleven twenty-seven. Have I got it? yes, sir. He who earnestly seeks good finds favor, but trouble will come to him who seeks 
Oh, that's good. He who earnestly seeks good will find favor, but trouble will come to the one who seeks evil. So he's saying, as he says here, brethren, seek the things that are good. We ought also to do that. Look at the last verse there, verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these what? Okay, look at your verse. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9. This is important. The things you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. How does the God of peace come with you? He's with you as you obey. God's always with us, but His presence is especially felt, and His presence is known as you are obedient to Him. You will see the presence of God working in your life. That is, it is a prerequisite that you're submissive to Him before you feel the peace of God, the God of peace. Okay? So practice what you've learned is at number five. These are ways to change your attitude. If you ever want to do a good study in the Bible, look up the word spirit, not just Holy Spirit, but the word spirit often in the book of Proverbs. And it's basically the idea of attitude. It's our, it's our English idea, attitude. If you look up a, a vengeful spirit, you know, a, a, a jealous spirit, all these, an angry spirit, those are attitude words. If you have a teenager who struggles with their attitude, or maybe you're a grown-up teenager who struggles with your attitude, this is a great study to look at what God says about attitude. If you just look up that word spirit, and that temp, a lot of those words are, are focused on attitude, something we're thinking about. Matthew chapter 5. Let's go there next. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, look at verse 26. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out till you have paid the last penny. I think that's supposed to say 25 and 26, not 26 and 27. Sorry about that. Let's back up to verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, you'll be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means pay until you have, uh, you have no means get out until you have paid um, the last penny. The story here or the... Uh, the picture here of, of Matthew chapter 5 is that of a, um, uh, he says, um, uh, anger is like, you know, don't, don't be angry with your brother. And then he, he gives this illustration about agreeing with your adversary, which puzzles a lot of people, but I'm going to explain it to you just briefly. So hang with me for a second. If you look at your Bible. He says, the reason you need to deal with your anger quickly is because it spirals. It gets out of control. It gets worse. It doesn't get better. He says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. That means that if you were like being sued, if you're suing somebody or somebody's suing you or you're in an argument with someone, you're going to the court and you're on the road together and you happen to come across this person while you're walking together and you're walking to the road, it's so much better to come, across, come to an agreement on your way to the judge. He says, agree with him. Just like deal with it before you get to the judge. Because if you don't do that, notice the next thing lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you to the officer and you be thrown in prison. So it will only get worse. And then he says this, you will by no means get out till you have paid the last penny. The picture is, is that you will suffer the consequences of being stubborn and not dealing with this when you should have dealt with it. Deal with your sin quickly. Don't allow, this is a picture of how sin traps you and gets worse and worse and basically binds you. 
So the point he makes in the book is count the cost. He says when you're stuck in a conflict with someone else, it might be helpful to consider the real cost of continuing this conflict. He says you need to make friends quickly so you will not be thrown into prison. And and then he says there's a lot of um, different possible prisons that people face, such as self-pity, resentment, bitterness, and their relationship with God's God suffers. So be careful when you're in a conflict how bad you're going to let it get. Uh, deal with it quickly and don't let it persist because the cost, the cost will only get greater. And then he says, when we are demanding our rights, he says, remember God's mercy. This is your next blank. Remember God's mercy when demanding our rights. Remember God's mercy when demanding our rights. He says, when exercising a right allows you to avoid a moral responsibility or to take unfair advantage of others, you have not acted justly in the eyes of God, regardless of what a court might say. So be careful be careful here. Remember God's mercy when you are uh, demanding your rights. Because we're tempted to demand our rights and not want someone to get away with mistreating us. I've heard this many times. People say, well, I just can't let him get away with that. I can't let her do that. I've got to, you know, establish my own rights here. And, and God says, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. That's Luke chapter 6 and verse 36. So we need to be merciful to others. And it's not always right to demand uh, to demand our rights. Biblical examples of people who gave up their rights. Um, let's just look through these. I know we don't have a ton of time, but does anybody know what right Abraham gave up? Genesis chapter 13. Yeah, which land, right? Abraham and Lot. He says, I'll let, I'll let Lot choose first. Wait, the land was promised to Abraham, and Abraham gave up that right in order to help with the, um, uh, the tension that was there between him and Lot. How about Joseph? Yeah, here he is. Here he is standing over them with power. He is a second in command in Egypt, and he has these guys under, like, he, he's been toying with them even. Like, there's, if you watch that, if you read that carefully, he's been, he's been really trying to see what these guys, if they're truly, for, uh, truly repentant, what their condition is, and he could have just squashed them like a bug if he wanted to. He could have tortured them. He could have done anything he wanted. Um, but if you see Genesis 50, he says, um, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God, God, you know, God's been in this. And so he, he saw that. How about David, 2 Samuel 16? Well, this is, uh, there's, a, there's a man named Shimei. This is a lesser known story. Shimei is, is, a curse, is cursing him in, in 2 Samuel 16. And, and David could have executed him, but he chooses, chooses not to. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 um, he gave up the responsibility, or the, um, he, he did not demand financial resp- support from the Corinthian church. If you remember this, right? He did not demand uh, support. He also gave up his right uh, to trial and, uh, in Acts chapter uh, 16. And if you turn your page over, Jesus himself uh, did not exercise the right of exemption from a temple tax. That's Matthew chapter 17. He submitted to that. And also, I mean, it's his father's house. He did not have to do that if he didn't want to. And then also, uh, Matthew 26, the, the story of the crucifixion, there was a song that used, the choir used to sing called, he could have called 10,000 angels. You know, he, Jesus could have instantly decided, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let this stand. And he could have called all the hosts of heaven to come intercede for him and to rescue him from the uh, the horrible humiliation he was facing, yet he did not um, call for that 
rescue from the suffering at the hands of the Jews. There are a couple examples of appropriate assertion of personal rights. I find it interesting that both the ones he mentions in the book are from the Apostle Paul. I don't know what to make of that, um, only that it's much more rare that you find people asserting their rights than you do people giving up their rights. But Paul asserts his rights as a Roman citizen in Acts 16. Uh, after he's mistreated, he says, don't you know I was a Roman? I am a Roman. And then he makes them apologize. Then Acts 22, he uh, seemingly learning his lesson, he uh, asserts his right as a Roman and demands a, a trial, uh, secures an appeal there. And we just covered that actually not too long ago uh, when I preached through the book of Acts. So there are a couple, a couple details of that. So the question comes at the end here, when do we assert our rights or when do we give up our rights? And I think this is a helpful, helpful principle here. Um, rights are really privileges, privileges given by God to be used for His glory and to benefit others. Let me say that again. Rights are truly or really privileges given by God to be used for His glory and to benefit others. We must steward these rights to honor God. We must never twist this to our advantage. Okay. Um, we must steward these rights to honor God. We should never twist this to our advantage. And I would say that in marriages, this is a big issue. That a lot of times a husband who says, when the husband, when I hear, I don't want to make it sound like it happens all the time, but when, when a husband says something to the effect of, well, she needs to honor me, and she needs to respect me. Is he correct? Well, yeah. I mean, biblically, she should. She needs to biblically respect her husband and biblically honor him. Yeah, absolutely. But like when he asserts that, when he's demanding that right, often the reason he's doing that is for his own advantage, not to serve his wife. And, and so it's, we need to see our, our rights not as things that we demand for our own benefit, but as privileges that we can use to serve others. Is that, you see what I'm saying? So we willingly give them up when the opportunity comes to serve other people. So when do you confront? When do you cover? How do you deal with these things? Uh, don't, you know, the priority, we really ought to think in terms of covering sin ought to be the normal. Covering other sins and overlooking, them sin, overlooking their sins ought to be the normal way of doing things. I'm a little bit over time, but maybe we can do like one minute of questions before the nursery uh, people start revolting on us. Any, any questions or thoughts or comments? We can cover more of this next time if y'all want. I don't know if I answered the question, like, is hair in the sink a sin issue? Um, we actually talked about that. Let me just say this, I'll close. Okay, so, uh, so it can be. Here's the thing. So like, is 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 um leaving so i have a rule in the house i don't like things left on the steps i think it's i think it's a bad idea so i'm like no nothing on the steps so if i say we have a rule in this house you're not allowed to leave things on the steps we have a guest come over and they leave something on the steps have they sinned no because they don't know the rule it's not like it's written in the bible somewhere thou shalt not leave things on the steps you know it's not there but in our house that is a rule so if my kids do it is it a sin oh yeah because they know they know they're not supposed to do that. They do it anyway. You know, it's, a, it's, it's wrong. So if you make it a sin, if you make it a thing, you say, no, this in our house, we will only do this or whatever. It actually can become. So be careful what you burden your people, your kids, 
your loved ones. Yeah, Tim? I missed the second part. When you retire, you have your own sink. Okay, I have something to look forward to, right? I was not the one who was talking about hair in the sink, by the way, just to be clear. Let's close the prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for how you work in our lives and how you uh, bring things that are uncomfortable to us to make us who we ought to be. And I thank you so much for the, uh, the, the opportunities we have to steward conflict, to glorify you. I pray that we would do so in our personal lives. We would choose carefully what we conflict, what we uh, actually uh, overlook and what we choose to address. And we do this for your glory, not for our own benefit. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.